All right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I trust you had a good week. If you'll open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews again in chapter 2. This is where we began last week as well, Hebrews chapter 2, in the first four verses. We read this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us all here again this morning, for bringing us together that we might study your word and come to know you more as our God and as our Father. We pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We ask also that you would allow us to be able to focus well this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we looked at this passage here in Hebrews 2, and we spent most of our time in Hebrews 1, because of the phrase in verse 3, talking about this great salvation that we are not supposed to neglect. And the first thing we read about that salvation is that it was declared by the Lord. And so we looked through Hebrews 1 to determine the significance of that. Why is it important that this message was declared by the Lord? So just briefly, to recap what we did last week, We saw in verse 1 in chapter 1 that God has spoken in two ways, by his prophets and by his son. And what we learn in these first few verses is that the prophets on one hand spoke of things that they saw, things that were revealed to them. We looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and how he sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and how he receives his commission from him to then come and prophesied to God's people. But then we looked at how Christ, whom this passage speaks of, is the one whom Isaiah actually saw. And he now has come to earth and has spoken. And the message that we are to give heed to is his message. So he is superior to the prophets because, in a sense, what they were trying to communicate, he himself is. And the second thing we looked at in chapter 1 was that he is superior to angels. And we saw that last week in two ways. He was superior to angels by the name that he has received. And we looked through a few verses in chapter 1 to see that the name that that's referring to is the name of Son, that Christ is the Son of God. And we looked in relation to that at the resurrection of Christ. This comes right here in chapter 1. He 
inherits this name of son after making purification for sins and sitting down at God's right hand. And in doing so, he becomes as much more superior to angels as his name is more excellent than theirs. And we looked at how Christ, by his resurrection from the dead, is declared to be the Son of God in power, Paul writes in Romans 1. And just to be clear, that is not saying that Christ was not the Son of God until his resurrection, then he became the Son of God. For early on in the ministry of Christ, there's a voice from heaven, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But in a special way, he is declared to be the Son, in a sense, confirmed in his identity as the Son in his resurrection. So he is superior to angels because of his name, But then we also saw in verse 6 that he is superior to angels because of the worship that he receives from them. And we mentioned again in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, he sees angels performing acts of worship to this king. And this king is Christ. So that takes us to verse 7, where we'll pick up today. And... Hopefully, we will not be in chapter 1 too long. I want to finish this up relatively quickly so we can get to chapter 2. We read this in verse 7 of chapter 1. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, as we look at this verse, I want us to consider one thing especially. If you look back to verse 5 with me very quickly, that verse begins with these words, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then you have a quotation that the author is attributing to God. God has spoken this. He has said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The next quotation, still in verse 5, another thing that God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So all through here in chapter 1, when we have these quotations after verse 5, often these are brought in with, he said something. And that he, going back to verse 5, is God speaking. So we have here in verse 7, of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now in the context of Hebrews 1, as God is speaking these things, he is speaking these things either about Christ or to Christ. So we see in verse 5, he speaks, The Father speaks directly to the Son and says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. He says in verse 6 about the Son, Let all God's angels worship Him. So we have here in chapter 7 again, God is speaking about the Son and says that He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. So we read here a third reason why Christ is superior to the angels is because He actually is the one who is sending them out to their service. He is the one who makes his angels winds. He is the one who makes his ministers a flame of fire. As we move on into verse 8, we have another reason that the author gives us as to why Christ is superior to angels. We read this in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we read in verse 7 
that Christ sends out his angels to do his will. He makes them winds. He makes his ministers flaming fire. And then we come to verse 8. And God says of the Son, and this is interesting to read this. This is God speaking to Christ. And how does he speak to him? He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's a, a pretty clear statement of really the identity of Christ as truly God, one with the Father, that the Father himself would say to Christ that your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we have here again a comparison in verse 7, the angels as servants sent out by Christ, and in verse 8, Christ himself as the one who rules this kingdom with a scepter of uprightness. And then we come into, chapter, into verse 9, and we see another glimpse into why it is that Christ has been exalted to his position at the right hand of the Father. Earlier in chapter 1, in verse 3, we saw that he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God after doing what? After making purification for sins. And you have in that verse what sometimes is referred to as the passive obedience of Christ. And that does not mean that he is obeying passively, but it is a term that was created to try to convey this idea that Christ becomes obedient to the point of death, and in that death, he bears the penalty for all of the sins of his people. And so he he submits himself to the Father in obedience in order to make purification for sins. But then we have another aspect of his obedience, where not only did Christ offer himself as the sacrifice for sin, but he himself, in addition to bearing the penalty of sin, he himself lived righteously. So that as our Savior, when we trust in him, we trust in him knowing that he has borne our sin away, And he has given us new righteousness. So we read in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That Christ in his entire earthly life, he lived a life that was characterized by a love for righteousness and a hatred for wickedness. And what does the second half of this verse say? Therefore, because of that, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm not going to spend too long here, but just to point out, we have this realization here that Christ is superior to the angels, again, because he is the king and they are his servants, but also because he has this role, in a sense, this role as Messiah. And it's because of how he fulfilled that role on earth that he then has been anointed by God. We move into verse 10, and we have yet another reason that the author gives as to why Christ should be superior to angels. All through this chapter, really, it's just kind of rapid-fire quotations from the Old Testament, but we have another one here. We read this in verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. 
Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So just to consider one thing from this, we're not even going to make comment about this hardly, but Christ is eternal. And because of his eternality, he is superior to angels. There's much you could say about those two verses, but that's the overall overarching theme I want us to glean from that. Then as we come into verse 13, we read this, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So we have again kind of another re-emphasizing this theme of Christ sitting at the right hand of God, sitting and reigning with him. And the author is simply making the point, has God said to any of the angels, sit at my right hand and rule with me until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the obvious answer is no. That is something that is only reserved for Christ. So as you come through all the way to the end of chapter 1, you have all these different things saying Christ is superior to angels because Christ has done this, Christ has done this, this is who Christ is, And you come to the end thinking, okay, so what exactly are angels and what do they do? Why are they important? And we read a very short description of angels in verse 14. We read this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's a pretty interesting statement. That the angels... Not only are they the servants of Christ, but when believers become united to Christ in salvation, the angels are sent out to minister to and to serve them. So not only are the angels inferior to Christ, but the angels are appointed by Christ to serve his people. So then as we come into the beginning of chapter 2 and we have this statement that there was a message that was declared by angels, if the angels are sent by Christ to do his will, to serve his people, and the angels come bringing a message, then yes, we should certainly pay attention to it. But when Christ, who sent the angels, who authored their message, brings a message to us, brings a word to us, we are called to pay close attention to it, and not to neglect it. So coming back to verse 3 here in chapter 2, we read, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And now there's three reasons, or three things that the author says about this salvation. The first one is that it was declared by the Lord, and that's why we've been spending all this time in chapter 1. But then the second thing that the author says about this salvation is that it was attested to us by those who heard. So you have Christ who comes as the Son of God and declares a message to us. And then you have those who have heard the message of Christ, who, were, who walked with him, his disciples, who spent time with Jesus on earth and heard his message And they now are attesting to the truth of the message that Christ brought. One commentator writing on this says, 
quote, one of the greatest wonders that attests to the divine origin of the gospel is the very fact of the apostles' witness. These were men who knew for sure whether or not the gospel was true. Peter and John, for instance, were at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. They knew whether or not Jesus was really raised. This means that they would have been aware if their message was false. What did they gain from preaching the gospel? The answer is nothing more than a life of persecution, poverty, and trial with the likelihood of martyrdom staring them in the face the whole time. Peter was martyred, as were all of the original apostles except John. Acts 5 records them being threatened and then beaten by the Sanhedrin for teaching the Christian gospel. And how did they respond? Acts 5.41 tells us that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And immediately, they resumed their preaching. When you think about it, this really is amazing that you have this group of men who walked with Jesus, who heard every one of his claims, saw every one of his works, many more than we even have recorded for us in the Word. They knew every aspect of his life on this earth. They walked through him, walked with him through each one of them. They were there when he was captured and they abandoned him and fled. They knew as a fact that he was crucified and they knew just as much of a fact that he was raised and he appeared to them and they saw him. And because of that, they became his witnesses in all the earth. Think of the Great Commission passage. Christ says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when these people speak of the truth of the message of the gospel, that is quite a, quite a defense for the truth of the gospel. Because historically speaking even, if there, were, if there was only one man, let's say one person who did what all the apostles did, who gave up his whole life, who suffered trials and persecutions and beating and imprisonment in order to be able to preach this gospel, there would be two options. Either one, it's true, and what he's saying is true, and therefore he's doing these things. Or the only other option really would be that he's out of his mind. And because of that, He's convinced of something to be true that is not true. And so he's acting in accordance with that. But when you have an entire category of people who all experienced the same things, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Christ, after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. When you have those people now, all living in the same way, preaching the same gospel, it certainly speaks to its authority. So we must pay attention and not neglect this salvation. First, because it was declared by the Lord. Second, because it was attested by those who heard. And then third, because God himself 
bore witness to this message. By signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And when we look at this emphasis on God himself bearing witness, we read in, in John 5, Jesus is performing many miracles, teaching many things no one has heard before, and people are questioning his authority to do that. And Jesus says this in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So we find in this passage that the very works that Christ was doing were things that the Father himself had shown to him to do. So in the earthly ministry of Christ, as he is proclaiming the gospel, as he is bringing his teaching, he is performing these miracles. And we read that these miracles are actually God himself bearing witness to the truth of that message. We read also in John chapter 14, Philip says to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now this is within the book of John, right? The book of John begins with this statement, in the beginning was the Word, was the Logos. And all through the book of John, you have this theme of, in a sense, the spoken Word that comes from the Word himself, the words of the Word. And Christ says that the words that he says, he does not speak on his own authority. But the Father attests to his words by the works he does in the ministry of Christ. And this is exactly what we see in Hebrews, right? We have a message declared by Christ. We have the gospel. And it is confirmed to us by the works of God. He bears witness to them by signs and wonders and miracles. So the witness of God validates the message of Christ. But the signs and witnesses by which God bears witness also validates the message of the apostles as well. All throughout the book of Acts, you have recorded the apostles doing great wonders, performing miracles, And we know here from Hebrews 2, and other places as well, but especially in Hebrews 2, that what the apostles are doing, the miracles they're performing, the purpose of those things is to show the truthfulness of the message that they're bringing. They're not simply, they're not simply preaching a social gospel and going around and healing people simply for the sake of their own healing. 
They're healing people. They're performing miracles as a proof that the message that they are declaring is true. And God ultimately is the one who is bearing witness to that message through those works. And just in passing, I think it's good to note one theological conclusion you can draw from this passage is that there's, there's a large emphasis in many portions of Christianity today on miracles, signs, um, an excessive devotion, as it were, to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like tongues, things like that. But in Scripture, all the way through, each of these things are given as validations of the message that is being preached. And so when the apostles come and preach, and their preaching is accompanied by signs, the function of those signs is simply to say that the message is a truly divine message. And because of that, it must be heeded. And so as we think about, you know, the, the sufficiency of the revelation of Christ, back in 1.1, him is the final revelation of God. Really, we, we have to stop with the message that Christ brings and be content with how God himself has attested to its truth in his word. And if we seek for further validations of God's word past what he himself has given us, we get into dangerous territory. But that's not our focus of this study, so we'll leave that there. But as we move on, we have one last phrase here in verse 4, that God bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, I want us to note, again, this doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on our theme, but I think it's, uh, it's here in the text, and it's helpful to point out. But you have here in the gospel message and in the declaration of it, we realize that this is a Trinitarian message. That God in his three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that all three persons play a role in declaring this gospel and in testifying to its truth. So we had there in the end of verse 3, it was declared by the Lord. It was declared by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God also bore witness, God the Father, and he did so by gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so here in this message that's coming to us, we have the whole unity of the divine being in all three persons speaking authoritatively to us. So just to recap very briefly what we've looked at up to this point, everything in chapter 1 is structured in terms of then and now. Then God spoke to our fathers, now God speaks to us. Then God spoke through the prophets. Now God speaks through his Son. Then God's law came through the declaration of angels. Now God's salvation is declared by his Son. And because that Son is the final prophet, is greater than every angel, and is anointed by the Father and sits ruling at his right hand, we must pay close attention to what we hear from him. Now, we've looked at the reasons why we should pay attention in terms of 
who it is that's speaking this message. Because of who speaks it, we need to listen to them. But the passage gives us two other reasons that we mentioned last week. We must pay close attention, firstly, lest we drift away from what we have heard. And all, all through Scripture, there are, especially in the New Testament, there's a lot of ship metaphors. Paul writes of people who have made a shipwreck of their faith. He talks about being tossed to and fro by waves in a, in a metaphorical sense. And here in this passage, we have another it's a nautical term similar to that. How shall we escape? So that's later on. We should pay closer attention lest we drift away from what we have heard. And when we think of that, you can think of a boat sitting at a, a dock. If it's not tied up, almost imperceptibly, you don't see the motion of the boat necessarily, but it drifts away into the lake. I think it's interesting in using this, this terminology, we learn something about what it looks like to believe in Christ and to fall away. It may not be that suddenly we experience a crisis of faith, that suddenly we, we begin questioning our faith and we, we end up in disbelief and we make this final decision, you know, today I'm, I'm believing in Christ and the next day I've decided I'm not going to do that. Now I'm not believing in him. The path that leads from someone professing to be a believer away from that, it's a drifting, little by little. And it comes, according to this passage, by not paying attention to what we've heard. The second reason we have in this passage, first, we should pay close attention lest we drift away from it. And then second, is that if we neglect this salvation, we receive punishment. And again, it does not say if we reject it, if we disbelieve it, if we deny it. It says if we neglect it. So I want us to take just a minute here to, to look, on, look at what it means to neglect what we've heard. So back in our first week, we considered a parable very briefly, of the sower sowing the seed. And the seed falls on different kinds of soils, and the results are different for each one. Now, I want us to look particularly at one of those. The seed that is described as falling among thorns, Jesus says that those are people who receive the word, but the cares and riches and pleasures of life grow up together with it, and choke it out so that its fruit does not mature. So you have in that parable this group of people. They've received the message. They've received the word of God. They've believed it initially. But in the course of their lives, things that in and of themselves are not sinful, just the affairs of life, the day-to-day -day business, the cares of the world, have taken their attention in its entirety away from the word that they originally received. And there's a number of different passages in the New Testament that, that echo this. We have Christ saying, unless someone hates his father and mother 
and his brothers and sisters and his wife and children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, all through Scripture, family is a huge theme. The family is one of the first institutions that God appoints when he creates the world. And he makes covenants with Abraham and his offspring. He saves Noah and his wife and his sons. So family in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's something that God blesses. And yet Christ says that even family can get in the way of the gospel. And it can draw our attention away from the message of Christ to the point where we actually neglect the salvation that comes through him because of real valid concerns in our lives. So the solution to that is not, therefore, ignore everything that you have in your life and spend every minute every day you know, in Bible classes. No, the solution to this is we simply are to, to look at our lives and say, okay, am I actually in the time that I spend in my life, in the days that pass by, do I give attention to my soul? Christ says that if I gain the whole world but lose my soul, I gain nothing. Is my attention being consumed by valid things in the world? Or am I devoting my attention to the gospel? And that actually has implications then for how I live my life in regard to those practical areas of life. We'll we'll look at that in a future week. But the main point here is that these earthly things, right, are not wrong in and of themselves. But they can become distractions from the message that we are supposed to pay attention to. And they can cause us to neglect that message. And so in the parable of the sower, you have those who do end up neglecting the word that they originally received because of what's going on in their lives. And the result of that is that instead of bearing fruit, the plant is choked out. So as we come back to our text then in Hebrews, what is the solution to not letting the things of the world choke out what has been begun in us by the word of God? Ultimately, that happens by paying close attention to what comes from Christ and not neglecting it. But I want to say this really quick. We mentioned in the first week that an exhortation is not simply a warning, but exhortation can be warning, it can be encouragement. And I want us to see as we go through Hebrews that with each exhortation, both of those elements are present. And up to this point, we've spent most of our time looking at the warning in this passage. What will happen if we do not pay attention and why we should pay attention? But ultimately, the author's main goal here is not pay attention because if you don't, something bad will happen. The author's main intention here is pay attention 
because of the greatness of the message itself. And as we leave these four verses and come into verse 5, all through the rest of chapter 2, we kind of switch gears from looking at the source of this message and the importance of this message to the content of this message. What is the great salvation that we are called not to neglect? Because if we don't actually get there, we're not left with much. If we just say, pay attention to the message, well, what's the message? But before we get there, we probably won't actually get there till next week. We only have 10 minutes left. So, um, to finish out this, this idea of the warning aspect, I want us to turn over to John chapter 15. Illustrations can be helpful, and especially illustrations that are inspired, because then you can't go wrong with it. So, in John 15, let's begin reading in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So as we look at this passage, and we think of it in connection with the parable of the sower, and those who did not bear fruit, because ultimately of neglecting the seed that was planted, we have this question that comes to our minds of how then do we bear fruit? And this is a question we need to answer 
because it is by bearing fruit that we prove to be the disciples of Christ, as we read there in verse 8. So how is it then, as Christians, that we actually bear fruit? Well, I want us to think quickly. Just turn back a few pages to John chapter 8. We looked at these verses in the first week in passing. I want to read them one more time. John chapter 8, verse 31, we read this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jumping down just two verses, Jesus says this. He says to them, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The Jews respond to that. We've never been slaves to anyone. How will we become free? And Christ says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we become free by remaining in the word of Christ and coming to a knowledge of the truth. And that truth sets us free. So you have these two aspects in John 8. Of the word of God, we're to abide in it, remain in it, but not simply as hearers of it. We're not supposed to stop at receiving the word. It must go from being hearers of the word to being doers of the word. And through the word, we're set free from slavery to sin in order to serve Christ. So as we come back to John 15 we see these same two, same two things right here. Christ tells us to abide in his love. And how does that happen? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So in John, and you can find this in other passages in John as well, but to abide in Christ is to pay attention to his word, to give heed to his word, to devote yourself to his word, and not only so that you can learn doctrine, not only so that you can learn and understand theology, not only so you can quote passages, but so that you can understand the word and therefore practice the word, that you can hear it and do it. Christ says that the one who hears and does not do it it's like someone who builds his house on the sand, and when the storm comes, the house is washed away. But the one who hears his word and does it is like one who builds his house on a stone. And a house with a good foundation is not likely to drift away. So we'll end there, and we'll come back next week to look at the rest of chapter 2 to look at the actual greatness of salvation itself. And I think if there are any questions in our mind up to this point of how it is that our working in salvation works together with God's working in salvation, I think a lot of those questions will be answered as we actually consider what the gospel itself is. But to tie everything back really quick to our theme of perseverance. Because ultimately, all of Hebrews is written to encourage believers to continue in the faith, not to give up, not to turn back, 
but to press on. And we won't really have a full picture of what that looks like till we get to the end of the book. But the first step in that perseverance so far is to consider Christ and because of him to consider what he says. So as we go into this next week, ultimately, we hear these words, right? But even in hearing the words of Hebrews, we have to say that we are going to be doers of this word. So are we going to pay attention to it this week? Are we going to choose not to neglect our great salvation, but to give our attention to what Christ has to say to us? Let's close in prayer and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a message to pay attention to. That you've not left us to guide and direct ourselves, but that you have provided the way for us. We ask that you would teach us more and more to rely on you, to depend on you, as the one for whom all things exist, including we ourselves. We ask now that you would give us ready hearts to hear your message this morning that comes from our pastor. We ask that you would, as we've prayed before, that you would teach us to love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.